Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, and the word of the Lord reads, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges, and by the way, I quote Jerry Bridges a lot, and uh, I do so for good reason. Uh, The late Jerry Bridges uh, wrote, That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and our good. So one of the most common messages that it's taught today from pulpits throughout West, the Western world is this idea that if a person comes to faith in Christ, that somehow their life is just suddenly, magically just going to become better. That if you will come to Jesus, all your financial problems will go away. That if you come to Jesus, that you will be able to reach all of your goals and dreams, you know. That if you have enough faith that you can be healed of whatever ails you, if you speak it into existence, you will find the spouse of your dreams or or get the job that you really wanted or be able to afford that car. That if you become a Christian, a Christ follower, that that you can live a life of victory, which is is in essence a pain-free, problem-free life. Now, some people will call this teaching the prosperity gospel, while others will try to mask it and call it abundant life theology because Christ came to give life and life abundantly. But no matter what you call it, it, whether it's subtle or whether it's extreme, it is still the same idea that those who put their trust in God are going to be blessed with health, wealth, and happiness. Their lives are going to be better, right? More and more as their faith grows, right? That the best blessings that God has to offer are all about this life. And this teaching is wildly popular. 
It's not just a fringe movement because variations of this theology have made its way into, into mainstream evangelical thinking. Even churches that call themselves conservative are still influenced even subtly by this teaching. And why is that? Why is it so popular? It's popular because it promises something that we all want. It promises an end to suffering in this life. I mean, that's what we want. That's what we long for. It promises to end pain in this life. It promises to end our problems here and now. In fact, I recently heard a preacher say that God would no more rather have you in poverty than he would have you in adultery. And he paid for for you to come out of both. That Jesus somehow died on the cross, not just to pay for your sins, but so that you wouldn't be poor anymore. And he said this in front of a huge congregation in a video that went viral around the world. Why would it go viral? Because what he's saying is what people want to hear. By turning to Jesus, you don't have to be poor anymore. And people flock to these ministries. And they throw billions of dollars at these ministries. Why? Because these ministers know exactly what we all want. An end to suffering in this life. We all want an end to suffering that we experience in this life. And so many people have become convinced that somehow that that is the hope. That their ultimate hope is connected to somehow living this side of eternity without any form of suffering. And, and, and that, for them, is the glory that they long for. That's why a prosperity preacher can write a book titled Live Your Best Life Now and sell millions and millions and millions of copies. But brothers and sisters, that kind of gospel, as appealing as it may be, cannot save. In the long term, that kind of gospel cannot bring you real, lasting hope because in the end, that kind of gospel will let you down. Because what do we know? What do we know for a fact about this life? What is it that we know down to the very core of who we are? That in this life, you are going to experience difficulties. It's going to happen. That you will suffer. I mean, we all experience goodness in this life, and we all have good days and times when we prevail and those times when we have success. I mean, there are people today that are going to compete right, on a field, and some of those guys are going to experience success, and some of them are going to go home not experiencing it, right? There are times we win. There are times we achieve our goals. There are times when everything seems right with the world. We all know what that's like, but we also know deep down that there's going to be those times when we're not going to escape the difficulties and the sufferings in this life. In fact, Jesus himself said in his own words, you will have trouble. In this life, you will, not maybe, you will have trouble. In this life, there are going to be times when it's going to be hard. In this life, you're going to have times when you're suffering. It's going to be extremely difficult. It's going to be painful. In fact, sometimes the pain is going to be unbearable. We know this, and it's part of our life. It's part of the fallen, broken world filled full of fallen, broken people that we were all born into. And it will be like this. It will be like this until Christ comes back 
to finally make all things right. And so suffering is an inescapable part of our life and our hope, right? And so our hope is not a pain-free, problem-free life this side of heaven. Our hope is something greater. And so the bad news is we will continue to experience suffering in this life, but the good news is our suffering is not meaningless and it's not in vain. In fact, the promise of the gospel is that God will use our suffering in a way that ultimately will be for our good, even if we can't see it. And even more importantly, suffering is the way in which we step into our hope. I want you to to look with me again at Romans 8, beginning in verse 16. And, And I want you to hear what Paul is saying. The Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. This, if you remember, is the scripture that we ended on last time. And we talked about that, about our being adopted in the family of God and becoming one of the children of God is proof of our assurance of salvation. Our adoption is indisputable proof that we are safe in the hands of God, that we have security as believers. In fact, if you remember, we talked about in Romans 8 that it's the pinnacle of Paul's gospel because Paul unpacks for us the security of our hope. One of my favorite preachers, H.B. Charles, again says, if the Bible is a gold ring, then Romans chapter 8 is the centrally mounted diamond in that ring because chapter 8 brings us to the very summit of what we're hoping in, the divine assurance that we are saved. Romans 8 begins with a promise that there's no condemnation and it ends with a promise of no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in between is the truth that God works all things out for our good, for those who love Him and are called according to by Him, and the fact that God gave us the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our salvation and that we have been adopted into His family. And so the central theme of Romans 8 is that those who put their their hope in Christ are safe in the hands of Almighty God. But here we have right at the end of this discussion about being made part of God's family, this statement that all of this, being an heir with Christ and our hope of being glorified is connected to us suffering with Christ. I mean, look at this again. The Spirit of Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, right? This is the hope that we, that we have, our adoption, right? That we are children and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. If we look at this word provided here, the word is from a Greek word that simply means if. And that's important. In other words, we are children and heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him. We will be glorified with Christ if we suffer with Him. And so there is in this text a connection between being a child of God and our suffering. And even more, 
I want you to notice how we are heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with Christ. And I know how much you guys love grammar, but you have to notice this, that this is a conjunction. In order that is a conjunction, and it's called a, a hina clause because it's from the Greek word hina, but it means in order that or so that. Grammatically speaking, this is, this is called a subordinate conjunction, or in other words, this conjunction leads to a result statement. Paul is saying is that we are heirs of Christ if we suffer with Christ, and this reality of suffering with Christ leads to or results in us being glorified with Christ. Paul is connected to our Paul is connecting our future glorification with Christ, the future hope of our faith, right? Paul is connecting that with the present suffering with Christ. What Paul is saying is the way into our future hope, the way into the glorious future we long for, is not without suffering, but it is actually through suffering. And this brings us to the place where we have to wrestle with the truth of the Scriptures, that, that the truth that's being proclaimed here. Because let's be honest, this isn't what I wanted to hear. Right? This is, this is not what we wanted to hear. It's not what I thought I signed up for when I became a Christian. In fact, when I read this, I, you know, I read this multiple times, and I, I'm like, man, can I just skip this? Can I just move right past this? I just wanted to move to the part where we talk about how the Holy Spirit helps us to pray when we don't know what to pray. Right? Or the part about where, where God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, Right? Or how about that phrase at the end where it says that we're more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us? That seems like a whole lot easier to talk about. Right? But here it is, right in front of us, the inspired, inerrant Word of God. In this verse, we find this conditional statement. The fact that one thing is true if something else is true. We are children of God and heirs with Christ and will, and will be glorified with Christ upon a condition, and that condition is that we suffer with Christ. And there's no way to interpret your way around the text, by the way. There's no cultural context to move around this. There's no hermeneutical way to get out of this. It's there. And so right away we can see that Paul, in this part of Romans 8, destroys then any notion of the prosperity gospel at all. Paul destroys the underlying assumptions of that theology. Paul, in this chapter, about the greatest hope, right, rules out any possibility that there will not be suffering in this life. Because he says, your hope is actually going to be realized through suffering. So no prosperity gospel, no live your best life now. In fact, as you survey the Bible, you'll actually find throughout the scriptures that there's a connection always to suffering in the Christian life. Peter says, why do you fret about suffering as though you're surprised by it happening to you? Right? But still, this is a hard truth, and it's a truth that we don't want to talk about or think about. Right? And, 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 and isn't this really in conflict with what Paul's been teaching about being justified by faith apart from our works? I mean, I thought, all I have to do is just believe. You didn't say I have to suffer. Right? Isn't there a conflict there? Well, actually, no. There's not, not only there's not a conflict, but what Paul is saying here, if we actually take the time to understand what he's saying here, 
will actually bring great hope and assurance to us in spite of our suffering. In fact, what we need to realize in verse 17, all the way to the end of this chapter, is all of that's best understood in the context of suffering in this life. And how God uses suffering for our good to bring us to glory. Our suffering is the context to understand how the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. Our suffering is the context to understand the promise that God works all things out for our good. All things, even the hard things. Our suffering is the context for us to understand the promise that God can, is for us, then who can be against us? And the promise that nothing will separate us from the love of God is best understood in the context of suffering. And so our being an heir with Christ and being glorified with Him is connected to our suffering with Christ. Now, as I studied this and wrestled with how to preach this, I found that John Piper in his commentary was super helpful to walk through this because he pointed out that if we're going to really understand what Paul is communicating here, we need to get clear about three important things. We need to get clear about what it means to be an heir and what is it that we actually are inheriting. Secondly, we need to get clear about what glory is and what it means for us to be glorified. I mean, we say that all the time, but what does that really mean? And then finally, we need to get clear about what it means to suffer with Christ because there's a lots of different opinions about what that means. And once we understand these three things um, and see how they're connected, it'll actually make more sense. And so what does it mean to then be an heir with Christ, right? We actually spent some time on this last week. We talked about our, our adoption into the family of God. And, and those who put their faith in Christ are promised that they are reconciled to God, not just simply as former enemies, but as family. The God of the universe justifies us by faith. He makes us righteous in Christ as Jesus atoned for our sins and lived for our righteousness. And then God puts His Spirit in us and makes us one of His sons and adopts us. And that adoption has legal standing. We, by faith, are God's sons, as Easy was singing. As children, as sons, we have a right legally to an inheritance, which means if we're the family, we are heirs of the promise. Well, what is that promise? Well, we don't really have to guess because Paul actually told us what the promise was all the way back in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, 13, Paul writes, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir, same language, heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's the promise. Right? The promise to Abraham and his offspring, his true offspring, not simply those who are related to him genetically, but those who are related to him by faith, those who live by faith, will be heir to the world. That's the inheritance. The entire world. We're heirs with Christ of the entire world. But understand, it's not the world as it is today. The world with pain and sickness and death and suffering and sin. But the world as it will be when Christ comes back and finishes His redemption, His redemptive work. When God finishes His work of redemption that was started from the beginning. 
the world that actually is described for us in Revelation chapter 21. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, just turn with me really quick there. It's the very last book, so it's easy to find. If you get to the maps, you went too far. Right. If you're in the glossary, you definitely went too far. Revelation 21. And I want you to hear the words of the Apostle John. Beginning in verse 1, it says, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We are heirs with Christ to that world, a perfect world, which reminds us of the very good world, the perfect world that God had created and mankind had lived in in the beginning, a world before sin and death corrupted everything. In fact, notice what Paul says in Romans 19, verse 8. Excuse me, Romans 8, verse 19. He says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was submitted to was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When, when all of mankind fell in Adam, as we know, sin and death entered the world and infected everything in creation. Not only were, was mankind infected with and afflicted with sin, the entire cosmos, the entire creation. And so the entire world was contaminated and subjected to futility. And just as man bears the image of God, creation still bears the reflection of that original goodness. That's why when we stand on a mountain and we smell the, the pine-scented air, we marvel at God's creation. We've all been there. That's why when we stand beside the ocean and we hear the waters roar, we sense God's awesome power. There's still goodness there. That's why when we taste food, right? Why is it so delightful to us? Creation still has good in it. It still bears the reflection of that perfect world that we long for. But creation like humanity is contaminated and distorted by the fall. That's why the world, for all of its beauty and wonder, is still filled with peril and danger. Claws and fangs and poison and disease and hurricanes and tornadoes and bomb cyclones and floods and... Famines and earthquakes and decay and rot. 
Creation, as Paul says, has been corrupted and subjected to futility. And creation itself longs for and awaits the time that it will be set free just like us. The time when we will finally inherit that world. The time that when we and creation will be made right. The time when finally we're glorified. And that is our hope when we're finally glorified with Christ. You see, our hope isn't that we would just behold God's glory, which, by the way, will be magnificent when we get to do that. Notice the promise is that we also will be glorified with Christ. We will be glorified with Christ. What does it mean then for us to be glorified? Such a strange concept to us. What it means is there's going to be a dramatic change in us in a way that we can't hardly understand now. That there's something about our very existence that's going to change. Notice what Paul says. For we know that creation, the whole creation, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You see, what God, when God redeemed us, He changed our hearts and gave us a brand new nature, but we still live here in this world in these same bodies. Bodies that are growing old. I don't have to say that too many times, you all know. Bodies that are wearing out. I mean, praise the Lord that they can still swap parts out like hips and knees and stuff, right? But bodies that experience pain. Bodies that don't always do what you want them to do. Bodies that are prone to disease and sickness. Bodies that are prone to hold on to too much weight. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> bodies that are subject to temptation. Paul is saying is that we are all longing for and groaning for a time when our bodies will be redeemed, when our bodies will be perfected. That's part of being glorified. And tell me it's not true. You long for that. Imagine the day when your back doesn't ever hurt ever again. Imagine the day when you will never ever again lose your balance. Imagine a day when you will never cough again, right? Imagine a day when you will continually feel strong, fit, confident, and capable. Imagine never growing weak, never, ever, ever getting sick. I mean, every one of us have been experiencing a lot of that lately, right? We forget how great we feel until we wake up one day with that little tickle going, oh no, this is going to ruin my whole week. What would you give right now to have a body like that? What would you give to never experience pain, right? For your joints to always work. That's what's promised. That we will have glorified bodies. And, and this is not just here. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 42 through 44. So, so it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. 
What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21. By, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That's the promise. Now, again, imagine the time when we will live with glorified, perfect bodies in a redeemed, perfect world. What would you call that? Heaven, right? Paradise. That's the hope that we long for. That's the hope that, that creation groans for. But there's, but there's actually more to being glorified than just that. And Christ just redeeming our bodies. Look at Romans 8. Um, actually, further on, beginning in 28. Notice what, what, what he promises. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Oh, I love that promise. Those who are called according to, to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, hear this, conformed in the image of his Son. You see, not only will we have perfect bodies, we will have perfected character. The word conformed is from the Greek symorphos, which literally means to make like or properly conformed by sharing the same inner essence or identity. You see, it's not that we're going to be made to look like Jesus. You know, we're not going to all be 30-year-old Jewish men in heaven, as some people have taught. That's just weird, right? but rather we will be conformed to be like Jesus in our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. We'll be like Jesus in our obedience. We'll be like Jesus in our ability and willingness to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. We will be like Christ in our ability to obey every single command of God. That is where we will finally experience full and true freedom from sin. You see, justification is the past tense part of salvation where we're set free from the penalty of our sin. We have been saved. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you were justified. You have been saved. Then sanctification is the present tense, ongoing part of salvation where we are being saved from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and works in us, changing us progressively, little by little, throughout our entire life. It's by the power of the Spirit, as Paul tells us, that we progressively put to death the deeds of the flesh. Sanctification is where we are currently being saved. And then glorification is the future tense part of salvation where we're finally and completely saved from the presence of sin. That there will be no sin in the world anymore. That there would be no sin in our bodies anymore. All the sin that affects our minds, our hearts, and our thinking, and our attitudes, and our bodies is done away with. And a thing of the past. And again, I want you to just take a second and imagine that. A world where there is no more worry or anxiety or frustration. Imagine a world where the temperature is always perfect. Imagine a world, by the way, I think it's 68 degrees, just so you know. Okay. 
Imagine a world where there is betrayal and no fear and no resentment and no loss or death, no feelings of inadequacy, no sense of hopelessness. What would you give to live in a world like that? Where you'd never, ever again lose another person you love. What would you give to never again experience earth-shattering heartbreak? That's the promise. But then there's even more than living in a perfect world with a perfect body and a perfect mind to being glorified. Again, I want you to look at Revelation 21. And I want you to hear again what John's saying. When I saw a new earth, a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, when we finally can be free from the presence of sin, we can be finally restored in our relationship with God, the relationship in a way that we were created for. We can live as we were created in God's perpetual presence. Remember how Adam was able to be with God. We will live in close proximity to the creator of the universe. We will live in close fellowship with the author of life. And we will spend eternity in his presence, basking in his glory, learning more and more and more about him and enjoying his life-giving love and worshiping him and perpetually being in his presence with all those that we love who are in Christ. That's the hope that we were saved into. But notice Paul says, Now, hope is not seen, is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We have a hope that is real and future. We have a hope that's sure, a hope that's guaranteed because God is faithful to keep his promises. And because we are heirs with Christ, because we are children of God. So the hope for us is certain, but we cannot fully see it right now. Why? Because we live in a world right now and it embodies right now. They're influenced by sin and marked by suffering. Suffering, by the way, is the order of the world. Suffering is the normal. Remember when COVID happened, what was everybody saying? Well, this is the new normal. This is the new normal. Suffering has always been the normal because we all experience suffering as the result of the fall. We suffer pain every day. My, my back hurts. I suffer from numbness in my left leg. All right? It's just simply a part of my everyday life. We suffer from fear because there are times that we experience fear. We suffer from emotional issues like anxiety and depression. We suffer loneliness. We suffer being misunderstood. We suffer from mistrust. We suffer from physical ailments. We suffer from economic issues. We all suffer loss. Suffering is just normal in this world. And it's a reminder that we're not yet there. 
Suffering is the veil that prevents us from really being able to see what it is that we're hoping for. But how does that relate then to a suffering with Christ and why this suffering is necessary for us to be heirs with Christ and to be glorified with Him? Well, first, let's talk about what it means to suffer with Christ because I'm going to tell you right now, this is something that's really easy to get twisted up. The fact is some people will tell you that this refers to us going out into the world and suffering persecution. Many people will say that suffering with Christ is about being persecuted for your faith. In fact, I've heard it preached that way, and I've heard people use this as a rallying cry to get people to do politically what they want them to do. In fact, I've heard people, people ask, if we're really following Christ, then how come we're not being persecuted? Well, hear me on this. That's not at all what Paul was talking about here. Because persecution is not always a part of the Christian life. I know that's not a popular thing to say, but it's the truth. There have been times in history of Christianity where there has been great persecution and people have been hunted down and slain for their faith. There certainly has been time where people have been tortured and killed because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. Right? But there's also been times of long-term peace where whole families and generations have lived simple, quiet lives. Right? Lives of peace worshiping the Lord. There have been millions of people who were born, who were raised in church, who grew up, had families of their own and worked and lived all of their lives unto the Lord for His glory to the best of their ability and never experienced an ounce of persecution. Are we going to say that their faith wasn't real? Even now, today, there are people in this world who suffer greatly as Christians. There are people in Nigeria right now who were, who were tortured and murdered by Muslim extremists because of their faith. But here in America, millions of people do their jobs, raise their families, disciple their kids, worship God with all of their hearts, and never experience not a, not a hint of persecution. Many of these people do great things for the kingdom of God, sharing the hope of Christ, supporting the work of the local church and missionaries abroad. Many of these people counsel and love other people and train them up in their faith. And, and some of them just simply are faithfully living to the Lord as an example, never, ever, ever even being threatened, much less persecuted. Are we going to say that they're not heirs of Christ and will never be glorified? No. So suffering with Christ doesn't necessarily mean persecution. I mean, it can certainly include that. And oftentimes it does, but it's certainly not the requirement. Paul's not talking about that here. He's talking about something more foundational. Notice he says that, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Our suffering with Christ are the sufferings, plural, of this present time. The sufferings of this life. Not just something, not just persecution, but sufferings, plural. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, our sufferings, is preparing us for a weight of eternal glory Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Philippians 4, 10-13, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, 
that now at length you have been revived for your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how it is to be brought low. I know how it is to abound. I, in, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance in need. And probably one of the second most popular verses in the world, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, there's a theme that runs throughout Paul's letters of overcoming something and moving towards glory. And what we see is not simply this issue of persecution, but rather every form of suffering that we endure. Paul, in his letters, talks about being sick and being physically afflicted and being shipwrecked and abandoned by his friends. All forms of suffering. Again, notice he says in verse 23, not only the, the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons for the redemption of our bodies. And the sufferings of this life, the sufferings of this present time are all the things that we suffer here and now. It's not just about suffering persecution for Christ. It's about suffering in this life of the things that afflict us and that we do that with Christ. And, and, and notice what Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed with us. And again in 2 Corinthians he says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, what Paul is referring to right, is, is the everyday normal sufferings of this life. That's what Paul is talking about. The everyday normal things that we experience and what he's saying is those who suffer those things are to suffer those things with Christ, with Christ as our focus and with Christ as our anchor. You see, to suffer these things in our life with Christ is not necessarily about persecution. We suffer these things, all the things that we do, with Christ as our hope with our eyes fixed upon Him. Better stated, we are to suffer those things, trusting in Christ, leaning upon Christ, because He is our hope. Our hope is not the immediate end to our temporal suffering. Christ is our hope. And that's the point that Paul's making. I mean, think about this in context. We are the sons of God because we are and because we are sons, we are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer these things that happen in this life by depending upon and trusting in Christ, who is our hope, so that we may then be glorified with Him. Because here's the truth. If we suffer, if the sufferings of this world, which ultimately, as painful as they may be, are still temporary, if the suffering of, these, of this world cause us to lose heart and lose our faith in Christ and His promise to fully redeem us so that we're not dependent upon Him, but we're dependent upon something else, then was, were we really ever truly trusting in Him and were we really ever His children? Was our faith really in Christ? Because if you come to Christ to be rich, your hope is not in Him. Your hope is in money. If you come to Christ so that you feel better about yourself, your desire isn't for God and your redemption. Your desire is just to have a better self-esteem. 
If you come to Christ for temporal blessings, then, you're, then you don't know what it is that Christ is offering to you. Now hear me. Can Christ fix marriages? Yes. Absolutely, without question. Can God heal people of all manner of diseases? Amen, He can do that. Can God bless you financially if it's His will to do so? Without question. Right? Should we look to God as our provider and bring all of our requests to Him, even the silly ones? Without question, we ought to do that. We're encouraged to do that by the Scriptures. Is God good and and, and does he bless those he loves like, like a father does? Yes, the Bible says that he does. Right? But are those external things the foundation of our hope? No. Because our hope is not more money and ever being broke. Our hope is not that we will have enough money for retirement. Our hope is not that we will never experience pain or that we will never suffer the ravages of cancer. Our hope is, that not, is not that we will never be betrayed by our best friends or left by our spouses or hurt by our church family. It's not our hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ and the promise that He will finish what He started in us that will result in us being glorified with Him. That's that time when we will finally live in a perfect world with a perfect body and a fully renewed mind and a heart conformed in the image of Christ in the very presence of God forever. A time when we will never again fall into sin. A time when we'll never cry tears again. I can't even tell you how much I long for that. A time when we will never lose another person we love again. A time when we'll never know what it means to be betrayed again. A time we'll never know what it is to want or need. A time where suffering in all of its forms and all fashions are dead and gone forever. That is the hope that we're saved into. And that is the hope that allows us then to endure the sufferings of this life, trusting in Christ to bring us through it all. Because that's the promise. What Paul is talking about is trusting in Christ when everything else goes dark. It's trusting in Christ when the world collapses around you. Trusting in Christ when the wolves are howling at the door. Trusting in Christ when the worst case scenario happens in your life. Trusting in Christ, including the times when persecution's knocking at the door. What Paul is talking about is the same thing he's been talking about all along. Real, authentic, life-saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so in light of all of that, let's just briefly read this text again, and hopefully then the lights go on. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him or suffer trusting in Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, as bad as they may be, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation waits for us to be glorified. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth because it has been suffering like we suffer, right? And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit living in us, we groan inwardly because we suffer, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, including our minds, will be finally free for the hope the future glorious hope in which we were saved. For hope is not hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if he if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I will add, we wait for it in patience as we suffer in this life, trusting in Christ that he will do what he promised to do and make that hope a reality. Now, with that, let's let's just let's Talk about briefly what this means. And the first thing I want you to understand is that us suffering with Christ and leaning upon Him doesn't mean we need to be happy in suffering. There's this kind of weird kind of sense at times with, um, especially I think in certain groups that, that you have to always put on a positive face no matter what's happening in your life. You know, you go to church and you can't tell people about, man, I'm really struggling today, but it's always, praise the Lord, praise Jesus, I'm happy to see you, everything's good, yep, God is good all the time, you know. And, and, and you know what, that's fine, some days it's like that, but there are those days that it's not like that, right? There is no requirement for us to always continually be happy in our suffering. And yes, the Bible does say, count it all joy, but it didn't say that we have to be happy about it. We're not sadists. The fact is that suffering at times is awful. Loneliness is horrible. Right? Cancer is a nightmare. Losing loved ones is, is a pain that's unimaginable. Betrayal and infidelity and so on can just can completely wreck your whole life. Right? So this is not a call for suffering to be happy in suffering. It's a call to keep your eyes on Jesus while you're suffering. It's a call to continually trust in Him and the promise that He has made you in your suffering. It's a call to pray, Lord, deliver me from this affliction, and I trust that you will, but even if you won't deliver me, I will still praise you, I will still worship you, and I will still trust in you. Because my hope... My ultimate hope is one day that all this suffering will be at an end anyway. Because you will do what you promised to do. You will finish the work of redemption and all things will be made new. And I will live forever and ever and ever in your presence and suffering will be at an end. Which leads to the second thing I want to think about. And that's the truth that even in our suffering even in the darkest places of our suffering, we can still be assured of our salvation and redemption in Christ. We can be confident that God has not abandoned us. Those moments when you cry out, Lord, where are you? You can hear the Holy Spirit in your heart saying, here I am. That He's not left you, that He has not forsaken you. In fact, His Spirit still resides in us, leading us and guiding us and comforting, which is what we're going to actually talk about next week when we come to the next section. In fact, let me just give you a little preview of what Paul says in verse 26. 
He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Even ever been to that place when you're just so broken, you want to pray, but you just can't? And you're just sitting in the presence of God, and you're just like, I don't know what to say. That's what He's talking about. Even then, you can know that you have not been abandoned. Even in the midst of our suffering, the Spirit is in us and comforting, and comforting us and interceding us, giving us the assurance of our faith in Christ and that that faith is not in vain. We are indeed the children of God, heirs uh, with Christ, and we will one day inherit a renewed, perfect world as we are glorified with Christ. And so then what do we, what do, we do in light of this? Well, if you're someone who's not put your faith in Christ, what you need to understand is your suffering without Christ will be meaningless. It will be pointless. pointless. And that the life that you're living today is your best life now. Because one day you will meet God. And if you were in your sins, He will judge you rightly and pour out His wrath upon you. That's the real gospel truth. But, don't, but it doesn't have to be that way. That's the good news. It doesn't have to be that way. God has made a way for you to be saved and give, and give you life, right? But also then give your suffering meaning. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. The truth is that Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could live, that He fulfilled the law that we all failed to fulfill. He earned righteousness that we could never earn. And then... He died on the cross to make atonement for our sins. He shed His blood so that we could be set free. He bore in His own body the full weight of the wrath of God that we deserved. As the Bible says that the Father was pleased to crush His Son. He died in our place and then He rose again proving that we can take Him at His word. That if we will trust Him, He will bring us home to glory. And so if you're not of the faith, if you've not put your faith in Christ, today's the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Now for the rest of us, if we are in Christ, what do you do with this? Rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross, knowing that even in the days that you're having the worst day of your life, that God still loves you, that God is still on the throne, and He has not forgotten you, and He has not left you behind. You just trust in Him and hold on to hope and rest in Him. And then become part of the rescue party to go out into this world and share the hope of Christ with your neighbors, your family, and your friends, because this is the hope they need to hear. Your family and friends... They might think otherwise, but they don't need. What their real need is isn't more money. What their real need isn't freedom from sickness. What their real need isn't for their favorite political party to win elections. What their real need isn't anything of this world. What their real need is forgiveness of their sins. And you then have the ability to go share the hope of Christ with them, love them in a way that they see the, Christ, the light of Christ in them and then pray for God to do the work that He does, which is to change their hearts. And so, repent and believe the gospel, rest in what He's done, and then rescue the lost. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. 
Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.